We have become politically more divided than we have been in a long time. Why is this? What's happening to us? Why do we argue so much with each other about racism, constitutional rights, border security, about freedom? What is it that we get so upset about? And why are we so tribal? And what conditions make us so divided now? What is it in the current era of human history that makes us so upset with each other? Every week, we invite a thinker who will shine a light on the question, why are we so angry? Today, we are speaking with Joshua Tucker, a professor of political science at New York University. Joshua has studied comparative politics with an emphasis on mass politics, including elections and voting, the development of partisan detachment, public opinion formation, and political protest, as well as how social media usage affects all of these types of political behavior. Arguably, the scope of Joshua's research has never been more relevant than it is today. We have two worlds with their own media, their own set of beliefs, and often their their own environment, I mean, geographical environment. What's going on? Let's start with a very basic question, Joshua. And that is, are people embroiled in debates over gun rights, uh, abortion rights, and taxes? Or is there a deeper fundamental divide within our country? Thanks so much for having me on today. It's a real pleasure to be here. And that's a great place to start. Um, Because setting up that fundamental dichotomy about whether this is about issues or this is about something more than issues, uh, we might call it identity, we'll, we'll come back to that in a second, that actually gets to the heart of how political scientists like myself think about polarization. So polarization is a topic that's been around for a long time in the study of political science. However, what we have traditionally thought about when we think about political polarization is in terms of issues, exactly as you were talking about, where parties or where voters, but in general, where parties stand on issues. And we can think about social issues, we can think about economic issues, foreign policy issues. Um, But you can imagine that there are sort of differences across different political systems when there are parties that have fairly close positions on issues. We might call that a system that's not particularly polarized or fairly different positions on issues. We might call that a system that's really polarized. You could imagine a country with a a primarily a center-left party and a center-right party running against them. We might think of that as not polarized or over time, maybe their positions get more similar over some time they spread out a little bit. And comparing that to a country with like a strong far-left party, a strong far-right party, a weak centrist party, we might say that's a really polarized political system. But the way we've always talked about this is in terms of where parties stand on issues. Is one party, as you said, in favor of abortion rights and another party opposed to abortion rights? Or is this, you know, questions about degree of abortion rights? Is one party in favor of having, uh, is one party in favor of having uh, uh, very low taxes and another party in favor of having much higher taxes, but more social services, right? That might be a degree of polarization. Interestingly enough, the American Political Science Association, all the way back in, I believe it was 1950, in their annual report, issued a call for the need for more polarization in U.S. politics because they were concerned the parties were too similar to each other, that voters didn't really have enough choices over big issues of the day. So, so we do think in a political, I mean, the, actually the opposite of having no polarization, right, or the, or the, the you know, democracy in a sense 
is dependent on voters having choices. If we were in an extreme world with no polarization, no differences in policies between political parties, that wouldn't be a democracy. There'd be no choice for the voters to have at that point in time. And indeed, if you look at, say, countries like Austria, which had long periods of time with center-right, center-left coalitions that would rule year after year after year, right, this kind of criticism was leveled. However, the reason for this podcast is not why are we so, you know, why are we so, have such a disagreement over the marginal tax rate, right? It's why are we so angry? Mm -hmm. And what's become interesting mm -hmm. in the past decade or so is that social is that we've seen political scientists and social scientists talking about a different type of polarization. And this was con coined, a phrase coined by Shanto Iyengar and Sean Westwood in an article where they called it affective polarization. Uh, in a recent piece that was written by a whole bunch of political scientists together coming to bring this together, we, we came up with a term where we called it political sectarianism. They kind of boil down to the same basic idea. The idea of affective polarization is not about where people stand on issues, but it's about how much you dislike supporters of the other party. That was the basic idea of affective polarization. So if the quintessential question about polarization in terms of issues might be like, what's your preferred marginal tax rate on income, right? The quintessential question for affective polarization would be how upset would you be if, some, if one of your children married someone from another political party, right? So it's this kind of idea of whether there is this dislike. And people have sort of built on this idea. And in this article that we published a couple of years ago in Science, um, where we brought this idea of, of political sectarianism, we talked about political sectarianism being a kind of extreme form of this affective polarization that was characterized by three characteristics. One was aversion, which is this idea of disliking the supporters of the other party, which is different from disagreeing about policies, right? This dislike about supporters mm -hmm. from another party. The second part of it is moralization, talking about politics and the other party and your party in terms of good and bad, not as we were talking about before we started the, the official interview, not this idea that there are different mm -hmm. solutions to problems facing the country and we need to work out which solution is a better solution and we could disagree about that, but, on, but thinking that your opponent is bad, is evil, and you have the right on your side. Um, and then this idea of othering, which is this idea of there's an us and a them, and these are kind of fundamental different identities. So one of the you know, fascinating things about the United States is that we have gone over a, I don't know, 40, 50 year period from a period of time where you asked that survey question about marriage, where people were asked, would you be upset if your child married someone from a different race, where there yeah. was high levels, people yeah. used to be very concerned about this, but they were not concerned about their child marrying someone from a different political party to today, where there's very low levels of concern about marrying someone of a different race, but there's high levels of concern about marrying someone from a different political party. So when you ask me the question, what is this all about? What is political polarization? If we want to get into questions of what's driving political polarization, right? I, you know, I think what you're interested in is affective polarization or this political sectarianism, which is this extreme kind of dislike of supporters of the other political party, as opposed to this question of issue-driven polarization. So I think that's where right. we have to start. And the answer to the question, you know, what's driving this? Is it specific issues, right? Or is it this, this affective polarization? We clearly know from the data and it's, you know, there's a lot of different ways you can try to measure this, but one of the most stark things is, is that we've gotten to a point where people in the United States, for example, dislike, if you give them a feeling thermometer and tell them to rank the party on a zero to a hundred, where hundred is really like, and zero is really low, we're getting to the point where people 
people's feelings about their own parties have stayed constant while people's feelings about the other parties have cratered to the point where it's like, on some of these surveys, you can see people who actively dislike supporters of the other party more than they like supporters you know, of their own party. And so clearly that level of affective polarization is growing. Then the question is, how is that related to this question of issue polarization, like you talked about, right? And you might think that on right. some of these issues, something like in the United States, abortion, which has a very strong religious component to it, right, that may feed into affective polarization in the sense that it gives a reason for moralization, right? Oh, the other side is evil because they are killing babies. The other side is evil because they hate women and they want women to die. But but they that's a sort of posteriori ar argument. So they already think about the other the other side as evil, and then they find a reason to argue that they are evil. Well, I mean, works, I or? think you know. So I uh, we can go there in that discussion, and I actually think like that is a fundamental question: whether people's whether there's something whether there's something going on that's driving both of these things simultaneously, whether it's coming from the affective polarization, the issue polarization, the other way. I was giving an example of abortion of a way where since that becomes a sort of very moral issue for people, that that becomes a justification for why the other side, right, might be things. But you're absolutely right. If you have a vision, right, of Democrats are evil, right, then it mm -hmm. becomes any policy Democrats are trying to promote, that can be seen in an evil light, right? So it can go both ways. And we don't know the answer to which way these things go. I mean, one of the things that we know that was so stunning is that when Donald Trump became president, someone who had very different policy positions from the Republican, that the Republican Party had traditionally held, it was stunning the speed at which Republicans in the country writ large abandoned some of their traditional policy positions to realign right. with Trump. And one of the quintessential examples of this is free trade. Free trade has been a bedrock principle of the Republican Party for 60 years pushing for more free trade, more open trade, fewer government restrictions on foreign mm -hmm. trade. Trump wins the Republican nomination in 2016. Absolutely not yeah, free absolutely trade. Yeah, absolutely not free yeah. trade. And then yeah. we see yeah. Yeah. in the immediate aftermath of his election, Republican support for free trade goes down, Democrat support for free trade goes up. So so, so what's the reason for that? What, what do you think? Well, is it because they, well, my first sh shot would be, okay, they're, they're thinking uh, we'd rather have Trump because then we stay in power. Uh, than 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 the evil Democrats and uh, and that way we get some of the things we want to to have uh, instead of nothing. Or is it? Uh, I mean, there's what there's all sorts of different questions. I mean, there's a specific question of why people might have changed their policy positions based on Trump holding a different policy position. Um, you know, we have there's a long-standing literature in political science that um, unlike you and I, right, we're sitting here having an hour-long discussion on a Wednesday afternoon about politics, right? most people don't pay a ton of attention to politics, right? And mm -hmm. in particular, most people don't pay a ton of attention to issues in the political sphere, right? Mm -hmm. Like most people want to go about their lives without paying a tremendous amount of attention to politics. So we've long theorized about how it is that people make up their minds about issues. And John Zoller, who was a political scientist at UCLA, has this sort of theory of public opinion, where he essentially argues if you ask people what their issues are, what their positions are on lots of issues, they're going to tell you kind of the last thing they kind of remember hearing. Now, there's a much more complicated idea than this. It's going to be filtered through what their predispositions were. They're going to queue up it. But most people don't have firmly set opinions about lots of these political questions, especially as you get into more esoteric political questions. And so if the sort of 
identity of becoming a Republican becomes more important to people. If this idea of mm-hmm. there's, and, and if we think about a world of, you know, we've long talked about partisan identification in the United States, which is a big difference from Europe, because in the United States, people will actually use the verb to be when they talk about this. I am a Democrat. I am a Republican. And there's been, you know, 60 years of study of of how you measure this, of what the difference is between people who have strong levels of partisanship and who have weaker levels of partisanship, the impact of these sort of stronger levels of partisan identity on things like what news you consume, uh, what facts you believe, <laughs> you know, whether you're likely to vote. This has been a longstanding kind of literature. But if this identity has, in the re- last decade, gotten infused mm-hmm. with Mm-hmm. You know, why are we so angry with this affective polarization, with this dislike of the other mm-hmm. side, with this moralization, mm-hmm. right, that this is a good and evil struggle as opposed to, uh, well, there's Democrats and there's Republicans and I'm one and you're the other, right? You can imagine that it becomes harder for people to hold views that are at odds with their party because that partisan identity has become even more important. And so this idea of having people line up their political positions, you know, more mm-hmm. succinctly and having people who are more, you know, they're going to mm-hmm. adopt these positions wholesale. That's one of the arguments about why you get this kind of, why you get this kind of uh, strategic, you know, why you get this kind of adjustment of people's positions. If they don't hold those positions that strongly, Trump, for example, free trade, that was a big thing he talked about a lot. People may not, you know, pay that much attention, but when asked questions about it, they sort of, that's where their, that's where their head is when they're thinking about it. It's the last thing that they've heard you know, from Trump on on the issue. I mean, another big thing that's happened in the United States is that, and this is something for, for non, yeah, so, go ahead. So let me just, yeah. sorry, no, no, sorry absolutely. for interrupting. So do, 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 do I understand why, why did the Republicans go, go so, so easily with Trump's uh, anti-free trade, um, you know, uh, policies? I mean, why did they go so easily with the, uh, with the trade war on China and left behind their own thoughts about free so, trade? Because you you say that it's actually, I kind of sense that it's actually very hard for uh, a liberal or a conservative, or let's say a Republican or a Democrat, to leave, let's say, the party line. So there's a couple different ways of thinking about this. And I think at this point, it's important Mm -hmm. to begin to enter into the discussion, the difference between elites and masses, right? So there are two different questions, right? Mm -hmm. One is, Mm -hmm. why do members of Congress go along you know, with with policies that Trump wants to push while he's while he's in office. And there's a whole set of incentives about this, right? Like we could talk for a long time about about how this is all played out, why this is played out. I think in the, you know, in the beginning, there was a sense of, you know, this argument that what the what Republicans wanted was conservative judges confirmed and Trump gave them conservative judges. And that was of paramount importance and cutting taxes was of paramount importance. And as long as Trump was going to cut taxes in the way that Republicans wanted and he was going to put conservative judges on the bench, conservatives would go along with things that he wanted. I mean, the question about these trade wars with China as well, you know, these were not things that were put into legislation by votes of the Congress, right? The president has a degree of power and there are things that have to be, it's harder to overrule something the president's doing than than legislating on it. We could talk more if we want about what's going on with conservative elites in this country right now around the big lie, around the 2020 election. Um, But, you know, clearly now it's also the case that it is very, very costly to oppose former President Trump, if you are a Republican running in a heavily Republican district, that if you oppose President Trump, you can face a challenger who will claim that they are more loyal to President Trump 
and among people who give money to candidates and among people who vote in primaries, President Trump remains quite popular. So there are real costs to it. That's mm -hmm. at the mass level. That's at the elite level of the politicians. Mm -hmm. The mass level is it is this, it is an interesting puzzle, right? Why did Republicans for decades when they were surveyed say they were pro-free trade? And then shortly after Trump comes into office, they say they're, uh, you know, they're, they're against free trade and they're more for protectionist uh, arguments. And I think then the question is, right, this is a thing about like this question that we were talking about before is like, how do people form opinions about political issues? And in particular, how do people who don't think about this a lot of the time form opinions about these issues? And it's right. much simpler, right, to know that you are pro-Trump, right, and that Trump is setting the party line and to figure mm -hmm. out what Trump has said about something than it is to think right. back about, oh, really, there's actually a disconnect between what Republican leaders used to say about this, about what George Bush and George Bush Sr. said about yeah. this and what Trump has said about this. And if we think, you know, if we think that what's going on here is that we're living in this time of this increasing levels of affective polarization or these increasing levels of political sectarianism, right? Then if Trump is the one who stands for people like us, right, at this mm -hmm. moment of conflict between the two parties, there is this, um, you know, there is this sense that like what Trump says should be the right thing, right? And then, and people mm -hmm. call it. Now, there are, I think it's important to recognize at this point that there are asymmetries in this regard, right? It's clearly that Biden is having a harder time getting all of Democrats to line up behind Biden's issues than Trump was in having people get in having Republicans line up behind Republicans' issues. But there's a longstanding, you know, tradition of that in American politics with the Democratic Party being a kind of bigger tent and trying to pull together more people with disparate interests than the Republican Party. Although although there was there was an article in the New York Times, I'm sure you haven't missed it a few months ago, maybe even longer, half a year ago. That said, that if the um, if the if the U.S. would uh, leave his its uh, its um, electoral system behind, the electoral college behind, then the Republican Party would probably fall apart in four parts, and the Democratic Party in only two parts. So, in in the Republican Party, you would have the um, you know the evangelics, evangelicals, um, evangelicals, yeah. of course, uh, and um, then you have the um, uh, the libertarian uh, wing, so to speak, um, and then there is a sort of, uh, well, let's say, uh, lower class, lower middle class uh, group uh, from the Midwest and uh, and uh, and the Rust Belt that uh, that votes for Trump and, and was a Ford one, and then the Democratic Party would fall apart in two parts: a more, you know, extreme right. left wing, you know, AOC, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren wing, and then the more middle centrist. Uh, centrist left wing with uh, well uh, Kamala Harris, I assume, and uh, Biden and others. So I'll, yeah, so, so I'll answer that as a political scientist by saying two things. The first is okay. generally, <laughs> right? We're on to a really important topic here, which is what's the impact of the electoral system on what's happening in this country, right? And I think there's a long way we can go in that regard. On this point specifically, I'm just going to push back a little bit because I think what you're sure. talking about here is if the U.S. went to a parliamentary system where with proportional representation, where if you got you were yeah, you get into a parliament exactly. proportional representation. So that's not just about the Electoral College. There are a lot of things that the Electoral College does to the United States and to distort politics in the United States. But when we have presidential systems where there's a winner take all 
prize at the end, there's always going to be an incentive to gravitate behind two main parties to contest for the presidency. Now, in some cases, we'll end up with more splintered party systems based on the voting in the in the parliamentary elections as well or in the legislative elections as well. And there's a whole set. Gary Cox has written this fantastic book called Making Votes Count, where people can go to look at kind of arguments around these around these factors. And Cox argues that, you know, when you have the parliamentary and the legislative, the legislative and the executive elections at the same time, and you have first past the post elections, so single member districts, not proportional representation for the legislature, and you have a president who is elected directly by the people, that's going to push you towards yep. a two-party system across the whole sort of national stage. But let's go back to the other question, which is the which is this issue about the role of the U.S. electoral system in terms of uh, in terms of in dealing with political polarization. So there's a couple things here to unpack, right? One is exactly this question that you talked about in terms of parliamentary systems or proportional representation versus single member districts. So in the United States, the Senate is divided up into 40, 435, oh, sorry, the House of Representatives divided up into 435 individual districts where everybody votes only for the representative from their district, as opposed to other countries like the Netherlands, where people are voting in national proportional representation elections and people are going, parties are going to get votes based on what they get, what they get across the country. What the, yeah, it was more or less referring to a system yeah. like that. And so what happens in the U.S. because of this is that um, we have more and more elections for the, both for the U.S. House of Representatives and for the Senate, where the actual general election is not that competitive. And this is because of a hardening of people's proclivity to vote the party and always vote for their particular party. And it has to do with the geography of the country. And I think this is a huge question uh, that we want to unpack in terms of your overall question of why are we so angry, right? Which is the geography of the country. And then the third point for the House of Representatives is, of course, the sort of famous gerrymandering, where uh, people right. deliberately try to pack these districts <laughs> together to protect incumbents and also to benefit one party or benefit the other party in these cases. And what this has the effect of doing is that in more and more of our legislative elections, the election that's particularly dangerous to the incumbent is not the general election where they're facing someone of the other party, but the primary election where someone from their own party may challenge them in their election. Yeah. And we also know that many fewer people turn out to vote in primary elections than they do in general elections. And the people yeah. who turn out to vote in primary elections tend to be those who are more interested in politics those who are more interested in politics tend to be farther to the left on the Democratic side and farther to the right on the Republican side. I and see. so what mm -hmm. you end up having is the safer these seats get for the, for the one party, the less, if you're a Republican, you ever have to worry about w winning any Democratic votes. So the only thing that you're concerned about is could you lose to someone in your own party? And yeah. it's possible Still that- the it, Democratic Party- the Democratic Party voted for Biden, not for, for Bernie Sanders, which is, he was a lot more to the left. So if the, if the, in the primaries, people who vote are, tend to be more left, left. So, uh, so, I, so we were talking about presidential uh, elections right now, which is a slightly different, which is a oh, slightly right. different question, okay. right? Because in the presidential election, right, the general election is going to be close, right? 
So you do have people who also have to think about um, who is going to be the more competitive candidate in the general election. And there are strong differences of opinions on this, right? There are, this is the perennial discussion uh, in American politics for political parties about whether they need to turn out the base, so nominate someone who is going to get the base of the party more excited and more likely to participate in the election because we don't have mandatory voting in the United States. So you have to, the first step is you have to get your supporters out to vote. Or if you want to nominate a candidate who is going to appeal to a larger number of voters, right? So one of the big debates in the, in the Democratic primaries has been, do you nominate someone, you know, someone like Bernie Sanders who might be less likely to attract particular votes from Republicans who didn't like Donald Trump because he was too far to the left? But Sanders supporters or Warren supporters would argue that they would get more people on the left to turn out and participate in an election. And someone like Joe Biden might yeah. make people less. The same thing on the right, right? When, when Trump was running in 2016, everybody thought he was going to lose the general election. Because he was too because, right. And because he was too Donald Trump, right? Like, and he was too, too you know, Trump, and he was right. too, it didn't seem clear that he was committed to democracy. And it didn't seem clear that he was a yes. polished politician. And it didn't seem clear that he was committed yes. to, you know, that he, he made off the cuff remarks about, you know, his commitment to mm -hmm. equality mm -hmm. and his relations with women and minorities and all these sorts of questions, right? Most Republicans right. didn't think he had a prayer you know, of a chance of winning. So that was an incredibly yeah. surprising outcome to the 2016 election. But Trump would argue, and Trump yeah. supporters yeah. would argue, that what he did was turn out the base, right? Right. Well, there are people who say that he was surprised. At yeah, that. yeah, that, I, I have heard that as well. Also. <laughs> wow, it's hard to see. Okay, so let's let's go to the real okay. question. Um, so um, that's just, that's actually basically the name of the podcast, right? So why? Why are we so affectionately, affectionately polarized, as you say? Effectively. Right now? Effectively. Why is this that? Effectively. Affectionate <laughs> is, is very, is liking. Also, yes. yes, yes. No, yeah. of course. Um, I've yeah. got the word. Effectively. Effectively polarized. So there's a lot, there's a lot of literature on that question. There are libraries filled with. Um, so you can go, you know, in myriad, myriad right. directions. You can talk about the media and the role of social media. Can talk about um, you know globalization uh, in terms of immigration, uh, export of labor to uh, lower right. wage countries. Uh, so shrinking of the white middle class is being named. Um, there's you know radicalization of left and right by on both both sides. The question is how how large are these groups? Uh, there's a growing inequality. It has been argued. Um, the universities would play a role. It's something you hear a lot about uh, from from the right. Um, like from especially, you know, right-wing pundits in the media on YouTube and all that. Um, and the electoral system in the U.S. is, uh, is a candidate. So, so what's, what's your, I mean, probably a lot more than this even. What's, what's your take on that? What's the, what's the question? Why are we, the, what's the answer to the question? Why are we so effectively polarized right now? It's a great question. Um, I think, you know, mm -hmm. I, I, I think my big picture question is that, uh, too much of this gets blamed on digital media at the expense of mm -hmm. sort of larger term structural factors. And so let me talk mm -hmm. a little bit about some of the larger term structural factors that I think are at work here in this, uh, at this time that are all things that are important to take account of. Then I can talk a little bit about some of the work that we've done on looking at this in terms of social media and some of the things people have learned about, about social media. 
um, and some of the explanations that are out there and why they may or may not be correct. But I think that's my big picture take. I think there are some large structural factors that are occurring in the country. And I think we can start with, you know, we can start with a couple of them. One, which is that there's been a realignment of politics in the United States, where we now have many, 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 much more clear alignment between ideology and party. For a long time in the United States, there was a liberal wing of the Republican Party that was based in the northeastern part of the country, based on the West Coast. People forget Ronald Reagan was governor of California, which now seems, you know, unthinkable at this point in time, right? Bill Clinton was governor of Arkansas, which also seems unthinkable at this point in time. So there you had conservative Southern Democrats and you had liberal Republicans who were in the northeastern part of the country and on the West Coast. And that sort of cross-cutting, that led to, as we talked about earlier on, the American Political Science Association saying the parties, since they both had these strong conservative and liberal wings, that the parties weren't actually all that different in terms of the policy prescriptions they were putting there. What we have seen since what's known as the Nixon strategy in the 70s is the realignment of politics primarily in the South, um, where uh, conservatives went on, and particularly white conservatives, went en masse into the Republican Party, and we have seen yeah the southern democrats yeah right? and we have seen uh you know and so the end of the sort of southern conservative democrats now there's still plenty of democrats mm-hmm. in the south but this conservative mm-hmm. democrat okay fair this enough. pattern that mm-hmm. we had for a hundred years after the civil war that conservatives in the south didn't vote for the republican party that came to an end at the meantime yeah. we saw on the coasts uh you know fewer and fewer of these liberal Republicans and the sort of continuing diminishing of liberal Republican senators, liberal Republicans in the House of Representatives, and in general, in general, you know, growing strength of the Democratic Party in the Northeast and on the left, and that liberals moved en masse into the Democratic Party. So we have, so this is one large-scale structural change where we no longer have within the same political parties people of different ideological persuasions, which some would argue has made it harder for there to be compromise among uh, legislative efforts at the national level in particular, which then some would argue have contributed to this idea. You know, Mitch McConnell famously said that his number one goal when Barack Obama got elected president wasn't to make good policy for the American people and get the best policies he could with a Democratic president. He said it was to make sure that Barack Obama was a one-term president. Right? I know. I've heard so, that. So, you know, so this yeah. idea. Okay, so that's, that's, that's really not realignment what of politics. And what, what, what actually triggered it? That's the, the only one, one point. That you yeah, yeah. What triggered that move? Well, what triggered that? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. Okay, mo- yeah, right. Yeah, before right. we move to the right. next one. Uh, what triggered it, I think, was a, well, there's a long, there's long questions about that. Part was um, Lyndon Johnson's, you know, decision to push through civil rights legislation as president, yes. which gave an opening for Richard Nixon to pursue this sort of Southern white strategy. Others would argue for a long time, Southern conservatives had looked like Republicans, in, but they weren't for almost 100 years. And when this opening happened, it gave mm-hmm. an opportunity for this to mm-hmm. take place. Mm-hmm. There's others would argue it had, it had to do with the politicization of abortion by Ronald Reagan as a campaign issue. Okay. So there's a lot of reasons why this yeah. may have happened. Let me get to some of the other okay. big underlying structural factors. Right. The second one that so we talked about. Realignment. Yeah, the second one, realignment of politics. A second one that we've talked about is the electoral systems. We talked about that quite a bit beforehand. But the current version of the electoral system in the United States, as you've had this realignment of politics, 
has created a system whereby most incumbents in Congress have more to worry about from a challenger from their extreme flank than they do about winning votes from the other party. So you have set up a thing yep. where it pulls partisan, it pulls candidates to the to farther, and the incentives for compromise, right, among elites become weaker. And you also have the opportunity for candidates who are, you know, what we've seen more recently in the Madison Hawthorns and the Marjorie Taylor Greens, candidates who, you know, get elected on the kind of politics of outrage, right? That this can be, that this can be, uh, you know, this can be, this is now possible in this world that we find ourselves in. So I think if we had proportional representation, it would be a different story. If we had elections, if we had systems that, um, for example, if we did not have, uh, if we didn't have the current primary system that we did and we had ranked choice voting with a sort of single, single election round. I mean, we can, this is not going to be a podcast about electoral systems, so we're not going to talk about that, but it's an electoral system. That's a second factor. A third factor okay. I think that is incredibly important is the issue of demographics and where people are moving. And we live at a period of time where people who are more liberal tend to move to cities and people yeah. who are less liberal and who are older and who are whiter tend to stay outside of cities. And so we have a migration. It's, it's, a, it's global. It's even in Brazil, it's yep. in France, it's younger, younger, more yeah. liberal, more multicultural people yeah. move to, more, move right. to cities. So right. what does that mean? It means a couple of things. One is it plays in with gerrymandering, which is this deliberate attempt to, you know, build districts that help one party over another political party. But it also makes it harder because you pack, you know, I'm in Greenwich Village right now. The de you know, Biden's going to win 90% to 10%. And that is going to lead, well, I'm at, at NY, New York University. New York University oh, yeah, located in the heart of Greenwich Village. Um, and, uh, you know, it is, uh, that is going to play into the, on the left that the system is rigged, mm -hmm. that the left needs to win more votes to win the Senate. The left needs to win more votes to win the House of Representatives. There's also an overlap between urban areas and states. Yep. So as you have people moving to New York, Boston, D.C., L.A., San Francisco, Chicago, right, you get large portions of the population that are located in Illinois, California, Massachusetts, New York, Washington, which doesn't even have any, doesn't even get any representations. And then you have states like North Dakota, South Dakota, Idaho, Wyoming, Montana. Well, Montana is an exception, but you have a lot of these smaller states that elect Republicans. We are heading towards a po po point in this country where you could have 30% of the population electing 50% of the Senate. Right. Yeah. So you could get 25 cent, you could get 25 states with 30% of the population that gets you 50. 30% is really a lot. It's, that's an amount I've yeah. never heard. That's, I mean, and it's I mean, not at that point yet. Yeah. It's not at that point yet. It's not there yet, not there I yet. understand. But you're saying, you're stating clearly that we are moving towards and that don't situation. And don't Possibly. quote me on the numbers. This isn't my area of research and things like that. But we are moving. Mm -hmm. okay. we, the Senate has a huge problem because it doesn't represent okay. on the basis of population. And the way we elect the president, right, where the Senate gets you disproportionate votes in the Electoral College, flows through the Senate, it also makes the presidency more disproportional. And because you have so many urban districts which have densely packed in liberals, and then you have conservatives, Republicans who win elections outside of cities 60-40, but Democrats win elections in city 90 to 10, 
you get into situations where the Democrats, in order to hold the House of Representatives, need to get 5% more of the national vote, 6% more of the national vote. To win presidential elections, they have to get 3% more of the national vote, right? To win the Senate, who knows if Democrats are gonna be able to hold the Senate in the future. So, so this plays into, I think, uh, this concern on the left, that, and this is one of the things that worries me the most, is that the system is no longer fair, that the system is no longer democratic. In a way that if you had a proportional representation system, people can't make these same arguments. Right. There's, I mean, I've once heard the argument that this was a plan by the founding fathers. So they tried to uh, guard the rights of the uh, smaller states against the um, the power of California and, and New York. Well, the founding fathers, right. California wasn't It there. was Virgi Virginia was, was the was big there. one. Okay. No, it absolutely okay, was. And it brings to mind mm -hmm. this question, though, about like, this was an electoral system designed to solve pro political problems in the 1780s, which we are running mm -hmm. elections with in the 2020s, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So that's a big question. And then the other thing, going back to this, like, why are we so angry, right? As you have this increasing sorting where liberals are living in cities and conservatives are living in rural areas, it raises the question of the amount of contact that people have in their daily lives with people from other political persuasions. So let me take a second here, and yes. I'll tell you a little bit about some research that we did. Unless all these kids go back to the family, and then they're exposed to it again. Like, I mean, <laughs> I mean yes, but, but yes. I, we're talking about it at a sort of macro level. And it, there's incredible research by people mm -hmm. like Jonathan Rodden and Ryan Enos, where they're looking, even within cities, where you have the center parts, mm -hmm. even within small cities, like Gary, Indiana, where the center parts of the city are filled with liberals and the outer parts of the city where the houses are, right, where people own houses are filled with conservatives or Republicans, right? Even within this segregation. So one question about why we have this. Now, one, one of the reasons I've gotten quite interested in this is that, so to go, um, to go, uh, let me, let me, I'll finish going through the list and then I'll come back to it because, because we want to we'll yes. close by yes, talking a little bit about media and social media. So, so okay. I would say, so I would say that's a big, big issue is demographics, right? This, this self-sorting mm -hmm. of people by ideology um, and how many people who are very conservative live in neighborhoods with people who are very liberal anymore. Um, then I think uh, the, the big question that is, you know, and then I think that a, a, another large structural factor is exactly what you hit on when asking the question which has to do with you know, concentra you know, concentrated policies on the part of the right in the United States to weaken the power of unions, which were a core support of the left, and mm -hmm. globalization, which together, the combination of weaker unions and globalization, the outsourcing of jobs, the loss of good high-paying blue-collar jobs, has made um, a, a class of people in the United States who feel like things are not getting better for them. Or things are getting worse. For and what what do you mean with globalization? Because it's a bit. Yeah, of I think globalization. I mean, even if we're seeing a little time. bit of the reversal of this right now, but the outsourcing of factory work to lower income parts of the country, right. the growth of free trade, allowing, you know, yeah. allowing, you know, the, the heralded supply international supply chains, which are now, of course, causing so much problems, and we might actually see a reversal of this. But there's kind of incredible research that's been done by um, Ann Case and Angus Deaton at Princeton, who are economists looking at uh, white without college educations and that the sort of living standards and income levels of 
whites without college education have stagnated in this country, while every yeah. other group sees over decades, you know, their situation getting better, whites with college educations or minorities with or without college education. Now, whites without, to be very clear, whites without college education are still doing better than minorities without college education in the United States. But this sense of, so there was but there's this sense of stagnation, right, that's happened. And that, right, there's a sense of stagnation. And that clearly yeah. left yeah. open a segment of the electorate for the kind of appeals put forward by Trump in 2016. Yeah. But it wasn't just yeah. Trump in 2016, although Trump put the whole thing on steroids. And then overlying all of this, which I think is the is the real is, is a real underlying question that we need to wrestle with, is the issue of the United States is changing demographic profile. This is a country right? You want to go back to the founding fathers and talk about the original constitution. This was a country that was built on, you know, on, a, this is a country that was majority white and it was been majority white for its entire history. A lot of the history of that country is, is whites in positions of power, political power, economic power, social power in the country. And we are heading towards a future, however slowly it is and, and democracies can argue over this. And there's all sorts of interesting debates and questions about this, but we are heading towards, a, you know, we are in a period of time where the proportion of whites relative to non-whites in the United States is declining. And we will you know, likely yeah. eventually hit a position, a, a time where the country is majority non-white. Whites will remain the plurality in the country, but the country will be majority non-white. And so there is a huge question, right, which when you combine with this question about economic stagnation, particularly for non-college educated whites, there is a question of whether we're in the kind of throes of changing to becoming a multiracial democracy from being a white dominated democracy. And so what that does in terms of identity and the Republican party has sort of doubled down with the election of Trump has doubled down uh, on this kind of white identity and standing, you know, standing with classes, you know, standing with this, this, this group of people who feel that their status in the country has become threatened by these kind of demographic changes. So these are big kind of social societal forces. Now, that's the underlying piece of it. When then the other thing that we have to talk about is media and what's happening with media. Yeah, but sorry for yeah, interrupting. Yeah. One, one more thing before we go to media, there are also um, uh, you know fringe groups that call themselves uh, Latinos for Trump, <laughs> the blacks for Trump, and you know, things like that. And they're, uh, I, I think that Trump has tweeted about that, and he still could. So I think that I have the impression that the Republican Party understands that their, you know, their backyards is shrinking, are shrinking. So they have to yeah. dive into different, um, you know, um, groups of people, and and not unsuccessfully, because of course there are people who feel uh, who are non-white and feel that they're more conservative for whatever reason. Especially a lot of Latino people come from the, um, you know, more communist or socialist socialist countries in in South America and are not especially um you know they're a little afraid right. of, the, of, the, of the Democrats in this country. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I want to be very clear. Okay. We were talking at the level of kind of big structural factors, right? Like big structural factors. You asked okay. what could be driving yep. polarization in this country. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think the uh you know and I think this um this question of the kind of momentous change that the country is going through demographically and the way that that is reverberating through the political process, which has been accelerated by the types of appeals that Donald Trump made in the course of his election. That's not to say there's a one-to-one -one relationship and Latinos never vote for Donald Trump or 
I, on the contrary, that whites never vote for the Democratic Party, right? Like, there's plenty of there's plenty no. of these things that are happening, you know, that happen in both of these ways. Yeah. And indeed, that was one of yeah. the surprises of the 2020 election. And I think a big nightmare for Democrats was how well Donald Trump did. And I think you did hit the nail on the head here, right? Is that, you know, Spanish language ads targeting, calling Biden a socialist, comparing him to the Cuban government, especially with Cubans in Florida, but it went beyond that. It was in Texas as well, doing better. So we wanna be very careful, you know, and when we talk about big structural factors, you're asking a big question, right? Like, why are people yeah. so angry? And so, Huge and I'm question. pointing to some of the yeah. big structural factors that exist in the country right now that may be pushing yeah. in this particular direction. So let's come to the, yeah. let's come to the last piece of this, of course, which is the media environment, right? And here I want to I, I want to make a sort of two point a couple of different points. Um, first point is when we think about the media environment, the sexy thing to gravitate towards, of course, is digital media. Right? We're going to be talking about the meta. We when we come back and talk in a year. We'll be talking about the metaverse and how the metaverse is making people uh, each other. Right. So Facebook, right. Instagram. But for now, it's Twitter, social media is the bright everything. shining object. But the mm -hmm. first point I want to make is that if you really want to think about the big change that happened in the media environment, we need to go back before social media. And if when I was a kid growing up, right, there were mm -hmm. at seven o'clock at night, there were seven channels in the US, right? And three of them were broadcasting evening news, the CBS evening news, the NBC mm -hmm. evening news, and the ABC evening news, right? Very moderate yes. down the center, white men <laughs> as the anchors, right? But very kind of moderate down the center. And Tens of millions of people watch these newscasts every night. And they were basically the same. And they were getting the same news from the same sources. And they had to watch the news because there wasn't anything else on TV at that point in time. And this was a mm -hmm. ritual for lots of people in the country. As we head into the 1990s, right, and we or even the 80s, late, later 80s, we get, you know, when I was a little kid with the CBS Evening News, as we head into the 80s and the 90s, you start to get the rise of cable television. And there's brilliant work um, by Marcus Pryor, who's a professor at Princeton, who uh, has written a book called Broadcast Democracy that looks at the impact of this. And Pryor argues that there are sort of two fundamental changes this does, cable TV. One, it gives people other things to watch at seven o'clock. Yep. And so people opt out of news. You can, you can watch TV about golf. You can watch TV about shopping. You can watch TV movies, right, with HBO. Um, videos, back when MTV was music videos, right? Like, the other thing it does is it gives rise to cable news, right? And cable news arrives, and particularly the arrival of Fox News, which seizes a market share and, and goes with this. What year was that? It's a good question when we see Fox News. I don't know, but I think in the 90s sometime. But I'd have to go back. 90s? I'd have 2000s. to go back and look. It might have been the 2000s. But we see the emergence first of Fox News, then of MSNBC as a version on the left. And what we see is it becomes possible for people to get their news, which as a European, this might be fairly common to you, but for, for the United States, for a period of time after the war, we didn't think of media as particularly partisan. Now, you can make arguments that media was, you know, corporatist, capitalist, arms of, you know, corporate America, but we didn't think of it as partisan, as opposed to in Europe, where there are newspapers that are clearly associated with the socialists or with the Christian Democrats in, in different countries. Mm -hmm. So we have mm -hmm. the emergence mm -hmm. of this television where people can begin to get, they can opt out of this kind of centrist news and get their news more from these kind of purely partisan, uh, partisan sides. Now, when viewed against this background, then we come into the period of a time of social media. And social media has long been described in terms of echo chambers and people's ability to find themselves 
in these ideological echo chambers. Um, but compared to the cable news era, social media actually gives people a broader diversity of diet in terms of access to news from different sides. Now, that may also be part of the answer to your question of why do people hate, are so angry at each other, is that people may have been much more comfortable not being confronted with news from the other side or not being confronted with people talking about news from that other side, right? When you're exposed to a diversity of views, that can also lead to more conflict about those views. And one of the big yeah. changes of the internet era is that we begin to consume news, not just as a one-to-one -one relationship between the producer of the news and us as the consumer, as when we used to open a newspaper or turn on a television show, but we consume news with annotation, which is likes, comments, quote yeah. tweets, all yeah. these sorts of things. And this begins to get us in a situation where we, we can be exposed to not just news, but also people's opinions right about those about that news now the the sort of you know you go back 10 5 6 7 years and what everybody is talking about is that with social media people are able to self select into these cocoons where they only hear news from one side i think there's been a lot of research including research that's come out of our lab at the center for social media and politics in a variety of different studies that shows that was you know that was largely overblown that there are plenty that actually for a lot of people, they do get exposed to different uh, people of different political persuasions online. People retweet stuff from other online. People who follow the Wall Street Journal might also watch NBC News, right? Or people who follow Fox News online might also watch something that's more centrist or watch their local news television station. And that, you know, we have to be careful. We have to realize that people live in complex media environments where they're getting media from TV, from radio, um, mm -hmm. Radio may turn out to be actually one of the more echo chambery, bubbly places that there is with right wing talk radio. <coughs> um, and that's a huge, interesting question why right wing talk radio has been so successful and left wing talk radio hasn't. Is it because of NPR taking up the left wing? Who knows? You know, the answer to these questions are. But that becomes a question that's a bit overblown. But the second big point I want to make is that one of the things that all those of us who study social media and politics have learned is that. Um, so many of the kind of behaviors that we associate as nefarious online, such as sharing of fake news, right, or, um, yeah. or being exposed to Russian trolls, you know, online, follow what is described as these power laws, where you have small numbers of people who get heavy exposure to things, and mm -hmm. large numbers of people who get lighter exposure to things. And I, my sense is that echo chambers are like that. There are small numbers, yep. there are people who are in echo chambers who tend to be extreme partisans. Um, and they are, but those are smaller numbers of people online. Um, and then there are larger numbers of people who are getting exposure sort of across the, across the thing. So I thought maybe I'd tell you um, with this question about this intersection between, what I've become fascinated about is this intersection between people's online environments and their offline environments. So I thought I'd tell you about a study we recently published um, out of our center, with, which the lead author was Nayla Asimovich, who's a PhD student in our in, at the Center for Social Media and Politics and in the Department of Politics here at NYU. And uh, we were reacting mm -hmm. to a study that had been done um, by uh, Matt Genskow and Hunt Alcott and co-authors uh, who are economists. Hunt was at NYU at the time, and Matt is, a, is an economist at Stanford. And they had done, you know, there's this super interesting question which is like, does Facebook make people more politically polarized, right? Yeah. And the problem is, this is a really hard question to study 
Because if I just go and look at people who are on Facebook and compare them to people who aren't on Facebook and say, oh, the people who are on Facebook are more polarized, well, it might be that people who are more politically polarized are more likely to join Facebook or Twitter or something like that. So that's always the problem. So what Hunt and Matt did that was so innovative was they came up with this idea of a way that we could sort of try to get at the causal impact of Facebook. And the way they did this was they got people to agree to enroll in a study, and then they randomly assigned some of those people to go off of Facebook for a month, and then they randomly assigned some of the other people to stay on Facebook. And they looked at what happened, they surveyed those people afterwards, and they found out three things from that study. The first was that people who were on Facebook knew, who went off of Facebook knew less about the news. They were less good at identifying current events. So Facebook mm-hmm. is something that's provided people information about the news. The second thing they found that was super interesting, people were happier <laughs> who went off of Facebook. They had higher yes, levels of social imagine. well-being. And the third thing they can they relate found to that even, yes. is they did find some <laughs> yeah. impact on lower levels of of polarization, but issue polarization, and negative effects on um, negative effects on uh, affective polarization, this dislike of other parties, although that wasn't statistically significant. So it seemed like Facebook was causing polarization. So we decided to look at this, uh, the effect of this. We wanted to see if their study replicated in a different context. Um, and we were particularly interested in thinking beyond the United States, how Facebook might affect not just political polarization, but say ethnic polarization. So we went and ran the same study in Bosnia. Um, And we did this a couple of years ago in the middle of the summer, only for a week, but during a period of time when there was a genocide commemoration in Bosnia over the Srebrenica massacre. Uh, And and so it was a heightened time when people talk a lot about, uh, about the history of the Bosnian Civil War. And we did the same thing. We got a bunch of people to agree to enroll in our study. We randomly assigned some of them to go off of Facebook and some of them to stay on Facebook for this week. And we hypothesized that based on Matt and Hunt's study, we hypothesized that the people who went off Facebook would have better feelings about the out-ethnic groups in Bosnia. And Bosnia is a complicated ethnic thing with three different ethnic groups. And so we hypothesized they would have better feelings because they would be less likely to to come across on social media conflict between different ethnic groups at the time of the at the time of the genocide of the massacre uh, commemoration. And what was interesting was we replicated their first finding, Matt and Hunt's first finding, which was that people who went off Facebook knew less about the news. We replicated their second finding: people who went off Facebook were slightly happier. But we found the opposite result for the third finding. People who went off of Facebook actually at the end of the week had worse impressions of people from the other ethnic groups, the people who stayed on Facebook. Well, so that's what we got thinking about. And we said, how could this happen? This wasn't what was expected. We had all this theory that led us to predict this wouldn't happen. So we went into the data. And one of the things we asked people was, what did you do? during the period of time when you were off of Facebook? Because it turned out like it was like an hour a day. People had an extra hour. What'd you do with that extra hour? And the number one answer was spend time with friends and family. And that got us thinking. Bosnia is an extreme version of what we were talking about before, this political sorting in terms of, because Bosnia had all this ethnic cleansing during the the, Mm -hmm. the Civil War. And so you Mm -hmm. have some very, very ethnically homogenous areas of Bosnia. And you have some more ethnically heterogeneous areas of Bosnia where people are living together. And we thought, well, what mm. if what happened here was that during the period of this commemoration, there were some people like Serbs 
who were only talking to their friends and family. And if they lived in ethnically heterogeneous area, uh, ethnically homogeneous areas, ethnically, you know, uh, areas that were all Serbs, maybe what happened was during the commemoration, they didn't get any pushback or feedback from people from other ethnic groups. And this conversation they had that was only with people of their own ethnic group brought up the animosity around this period of time. And so we said, if that was right, if we were right that that was what was going on, we should be able to break the data down. And the effect that we found should primarily be driven by people who lived in areas of the country that were only with one ethnic group. And we shouldn't find the relationship in areas of the country where they were more ethnically mixed. And sure enough, yeah. that was exactly what we found. That our effect okay. was completely being driven by people who lived in the more ethnically homogenous, that is just one ethnic group at a time, parts of the country. And it, we didn't find it at all where it was ethnically mixed. So it's one study, but it got me really thinking about this intersection between online and offline lives, right? Like, and in that particular case, it may have been, and again, this was a particular moment in a, in a, you know, a particular country that a civil war 20 years ago, you know, history of violence, you know, horrible violence across other race. So it's maybe, maybe kind of unique, but it got me thinking a lot about this interplay between people's offline environments and their online environments. Yeah. And then in some cases, the online environments may be where they are able to encounter people who are different from them. And in some cases, you know, in the US case, maybe that led in the study that Matt and Hunt did, that led to more political polarization. But in the Bosnian case, it seemed to lead to, you know, less ethnic polarization, which was super interesting. So to, to refresh the long answer, um, it's, it's undecided, it's actually not clear whether social media makes us more polarized or less polarized. It can turn either way, depending on the circumstances. Yeah, and I think there is that or is that too, I think that's a fair I think that's a fair frame. statement that it is still it's not known mm. and it's a very difficult question to measure. And I think, you know, mm. I think we need to think about this in a couple different ways, right? Because the mm. studies that I've told you about is we tried to say like, okay, in the world of 2020 or in the world of 2021 you know, when we did the mm -hmm. 2020 and we do the study, if you take people off Facebook, does that reduce mm -hmm. levels of affective polarization? Yeah. We can sort of answer those questions by doing what are called these deactivation studies. Much more research needs to be done in that regard. Um, and there are more studies of this nature that are being planned that are in place at this time. But that's a different fundamental question from would the world be less polarized if social media had never emerged? Right? And we're never going to know the answer to that other question. right? And it, it might be the case that after, you know, after 10 years of this immersive social media experience that the countries that people of the world have been around, right, we mm -hmm. are in a place where people who are inclined to be angry at the other party side have found ways that that anger can be built, can be channeled, can be manipulated, that people can make money off of it. Right. There, we haven't even right. talked about and we're running out of time, but we haven't even talked about yeah. the economics of all this. And we, we haven't talked about fake mm -hmm. news and the economics of fake news and, mm -hmm. and, and the economics around, you know, anti-vaxxer information and these kinds mm -hmm. of things. But there are, you know, there's money that can be made. People who are inclined to seek this out can find these things. Right. And those are that is a sea change in the environment. That's a different yeah, question. It's a, it's a new. It, but it's a. Right. New, yeah, yes. but it's a fundamentally yeah. different question that's saying like today, if you're not a Facebook user, if you're not a social media user and you decide to become a social media user, will that make you more politically polarized, right? 
you know, or are we living in a world where these ecosystems enabled the emergence of communities. Those communities have interacted with each other in ways that have exacerbated political polarization and have put us in a place where people are more angry with each other, even if does it make you or me more polarized from using social media as opposed to not using social media? And I don't know what the answer is. I cannot say what the answer is to the question of would we be so angry if we didn't have social media? because it's hard yeah. to disentangle. I can point to lots of other big picture structural factors that we've talked about over the course of this podcast that I think are driving it. Yeah. I worry, yeah. I will tell you that I worry that people pay too much attention to digital media because it's the bright new shiny object and it gives them an excuse to not look at these bigger underlying structural factors, right? That may also be driving these things or even worse, and not even the excuse is the right word, but it can give false confidence that like, oh, if only we can break up Facebook into its constituent parts, right. then it's going to be fine. Be fine. Yeah. And I think that's yeah, the thing yeah, that yeah. we want to be, you know, that that's one lesson that as social scientists who could study this, we have to be, you know, and I think in the last six months, there's actually been a walking back of that. And I think there's a growing realization, but for the last few years, from 2000, from, I would say from the election, from Brexit and the election of Donald Trump until the events of 1-6 in the United States, there was mm -hmm. a, an unhealthy, you know, fascination with social media and that if we could just fix what was on social media, if we could just have better content yeah. moderation policies, which we could use, yeah. but has a whole, that's a whole other podcast to talk about, right? Like, but there's, you know, we could, we could fix this. And I think that's what we want to be careful about while at the same time continuing to do careful research along the lines that we've talked and lots of other studies that we and other fantastic researchers are doing to try to figure out what are the pieces of social media that are particularly problematic and how we can finish that and how we can fix them without at the same time losing sight of the fact that this is just one small piece in a big puzzle. So one, one more question before we close. Um, Short, short answer. You can answer as a human being or as a scientist or both. Um, are you worried about the future of the U.S.? Are you, do you think the situation will get worse or better? Um, yeah, I am worried. I'm, I'm definitely more worried about the situation in the United States than I have been in the course of my adult life. Uh, I think the decision, you know, my colleague, Adam Javorsky, uh, here at NYU, you know, just define democracies as countries where parties lose elections. And we've been able to, we've pointed to places like Mexico or Iraq, where that, you know, Mexico, where that didn't happen for a long time and said, is Mexico really a democracy because the PRI always wins or, um, and, and that's long, you know, and there are much more complex definitions and you can layer many, many more important things onto that. But fundamentally, democracies have to be countries where parties lose elections. Um, because yeah. you have to believe that if you lose an election, you will have a chance to win an election in the future. Because if you're not, then you have no hope in the political system of seeing a political system reflect your preferences. And there's no sense in staying within the boundaries of a democratic system. You're only going to affect change by going outside you know, the democratic system. And the United States, uh, for all its faults <laughs> and for all its flaws and for all its problems, over the over the its history has always been a country where parties lost elections. When they lost the yes. elections, they left power. And I think what Trump did in in 2020 when he uh, when he 
refused to recognize that he had legitimately lost an election was a real sea change in the US. And there was a period of time there, a brief period of time, where it looked like Democrats and Republicans alike would repudiate him for having done that. Mm -hmm. And the fact that so much of the Republican Party has fallen in behind Trump's claims that the elections uh, were fraudulent when we had you know 60 different lawsuits and we had judges appointed by Trump and we had county executives appointed by Trump and we had all you know Republican sorry Republican county executives and Republican state legislatures and everybody you know nobody found this evidence of fraud but you have a, a you know a candidate who claims you know refuses to go to the inauguration of a successor this was a real sea change and and you can say that there are lots of other problems in U.S. society but at the end of the day. If you have a party that is not willing to lose elections, that is a fundamental threat to democracy. Uh, and it creates a fundamental threat on the left too, because if you're on the left and you think that if the Republicans win in 2024, they're not gonna give power back ever, right? Then that creates a whole set of perverse incentives around how the left should behave in 2024. So I, I think that what he did after the 2020 election, and, and I think he did it because He's, you know, he, because he couldn't countenance in his head that he could actually have lost. And I think one person's fragile ego to have this effect on the country yeah. is just, is, is potentially tragic. Um, yeah. But, you know, he has the whole time, you know, he has lots mm -hmm. of characteristics of, uh, you know, strong, strong ruler, you know, strong person rulers, strong men rulers that we've said. And, you know, it shouldn't have come as a huge <laughs> surprise. And there was a year long campaign before that election to lay the groundwork for that, that if he lost, that it would be deemed fraudulent. Um, and, uh, and I think this is something that's going to take, you know, a lot of effort to put back, to put, to put the pieces back together after this. So I am worried. I'm worried as a social scientist and I'm worried as a citizen of the country. Um, I, I do not, you know, I think there are still paths back and there are still paths forward and there have been rocky and choppy waters moments in our nation's history previously. Um, and the country has survived and the democracy has survived. And so I wouldn't bet against it, but I'm nervous. Yeah. And just to, to make, to make it clear, you're not worried about party uh, A or party B being in office, but you're mostly worried about the disrespect for democratic principles. Yeah, I mean, if we have if we if we have one party that doesn't respect democratic principles, then that and a two party system, that's really no, problematic. Obviously. Yeah, <laughs> that's yes. yes. Democracies have to be. I mean, this is the interesting thing, right? Because one of the solutions to this problem that people are saying is, well, Democrats have to get activated and they have to win elections. That's actually not. I mean, it's a short term solution, right? It is yeah. a short term solution. If the Democrats could somehow miraculously pick up a couple seats in the Senate. And then they could pass voting rights legislation to overrule, you know, all these changes that are happening in these Republican controlled states to restrict the franchise. And more importantly, just to make sure that votes are fairly counted in the future and you don't have, you know, state. I mean, this does come all the way back to the Electoral College, though, where we started this conversation a while ago, which is that, you know, it is legal in this country for state legislators to decide to appoint electors themselves without actually respecting the, the will of the voters if they decide that's what they want to do. Historically, voters didn't select electors in, the, in many states in this country for a long time. It's a whole other matter. But, you know, I do think, you know, if you have democracies are, you have the, the fact that 
Democrats should win elections is not a long-term solution to strengthening democracy in the United States. It may be a short-term solution to strengthening democracy in the United States, but in order to have a democracy, we have to have Democrats lose elections some of the time and then be able to win them again, right? And yeah. so yeah. that is the concern that if you have, you know, if you no longer, you know, it, it is a real sea change to have, you know, you only have to go back and compare 2000, which was, you know, really incredibly close in this United States, in the United States, it came down to yeah. hundreds of votes in one state, crazy situation. But Al Gore eventually said, for the good of the country, I'm conceding and George Bush is the president. That never happened this time. Yeah. And so the question is, what are going to be the long run ramifications of it? It's a two part thing. It's A, Trump's decision to do this and B, the decision of so many in the Republican Party to fall in line Right. And to have candidates who said, no, Trump lost the election legitimately, right, like suddenly be primaried and decide they're going to quit before even going to contest the election. And this then leads to the, you know, the concern, right, that you have a large, large proportion of Republican voters. This is not, a, you know, you mentioned fringe movements before. This is not a fringe of Republican voters. This is 60 percent of Republican voters, 70 percent of the Republican voters who believe without any evidence that Trump actually won the election. Yeah. And so this is, you know, it's, it is a moment of concern uh, in the course of this country. And it is a, it is a frightening moment. If you are a small D Democrat, someone who, you know, privileges, uh, you know, who is, who believes it is a privilege to live in a democratic country as someone like myself who studied regimes around the world that are non-democratic, you know, I value tremendously living in a democracy and the freedoms that entails. And so it's a, it's, a, it's a strange feeling to be in the United States and have people talking about threats to democracy. It's not something we thought we would, we would see. Okay, thank you. Thanks very much for having me. It was great having this conversation. Um, it was a pleasure having you here. Thank you so much. Joshua Tucker, professor of political science at New York University. This was Sjors van der Stel with Why Are We So Angry? The podcast that does not take a stance on any of the issues that divide us, but instead analyzes why we are so divided. Check us out at whyarewesoangry.com. Thank you for listening.